right, what's up, guys? My name is David. I work in a ministry in Dallas, Texas called The Porch at Watermark. There we go. And I've been there for the last 10 years. I'm married to my wife, Callie. I've been there the last 13 years. Doing The Porch for the last 10. Married to my wife, Callie, of nine years. We've got two kids and one on the way. A five-year-old son named Crew, a three-year-old daughter named Monroe, and a soon-to-be nameless baby boy or not forever nameless, but a currently nameless baby boy due in January. I'm so pumped to be here. And let me start by saying it is both an honor and privilege, and what Dale and his team are doing is amazing. And so if this is your first time, uh, make sure you come back. It's normally another speaker, and you're going to love him. And what you're getting to be a part of and what God is doing on this campus is remarkable, and it is unique. And when you're in this environment, you may not always see that. And so, Dale, thank you for having me. It's such an honor and fun thing to get to be here. I did not go to Baylor, but I went to Texas A&M. And because of that, I am very grateful that although you guys lost to the Horn Frogs last week, you beat UT and showed that the best Texas team in the Big 12 is not Texas, it is Baylor. And so uh, on that note of as an Aggie appreciating you guys taking out the Longhorns, a few years ago, or a couple years ago, I guess, I had a chance to go and I was invited to speak at a uh, ministry called Breakaway that is on Tuesday nights, basically at A&M. And I uh, had said yes to that, not knowing that I'd also agreed to speak at another college named DBU that's in Dallas. And that was on Wednesday morning at like 8.30 in the morning. And so immediately I began to play, you know, do I need to ask for one of these back? And, you know, I, I don't want to do that. Or how can I make this work? And I did the math and uh, the ministry at A&M started at nine o'clock and I live in Dallas. And so if I was to drive from Dallas there, speak, and then drive back, it would put me home somewhere around like 2.30 or 3 in the morning, and I was supposed to speak at the uh, Dallas Baptist University, another college campus, that morning. And I just did quick math, and I'm like, man, I'm going to get like three, maybe four hours of sleep. And you may be one of those people because you're in college. You can do that. Well, you can run off of that. But when your job is to get up in front of people and put sentences together that actually make sense, I know myself and that I need a good seven, eight hours in order to make that work. So I was either going to just totally punish these students the next morning by showing up just like totally incoherent, or I had to come up with another plan. And so I began to think through my options and it hit me. I have some friends that had recently started a private plane business, a <laughs> charter business where they will take you and they'll fly you around. And that may be your world that you grew up in because you go to Baylor, but that wasn't the world that I'm used to. <laughs> Or that I grew up in. Yeah, you know, it's true, man. You know, it's true. Everybody's got somebody on their row right now. They're like, he's totally talking about Bobby. Bobby's dad. He's got the jet. I didn't grow up with Bobby or Bobby's dad. And so this is not my thing. So I call. It's so much laughter, man, because y'all know it's true. <laughs> I call my friends and I'm like, man, hey, can you do me a solid here? They knew it was for ministry, but here's the scenario. Is there any way that I could rent the plane? Guy says, Hey, you can use the plane. You just got to pay for the fuel. In other words, if you cover the fuel cost, you're good. And I'm like, bro, this is amazing. God is good. Out of curiosity, what's the fuel cost? $2,500. It's like, dude, does this thing run on liquid gold? What do you mean 25? It's a 45-minute flight. And that's just the cost and price of jet fuel. And so I begin to go through, well, that's not exactly going to be awesome to pay that. And it hits me. There's eight seats on the plane. 
I can divide it up with some of my friends and we'll just split the cost and we'll go down there. And so I call some of my friends. They were all about it because they were Aggies and we basically split the cost and we flew in and in our mind, we were like, dude, we're basically like, you know, Coldplay. We're going to fly in, do something and fly out. This is unbelievable. I'm not Bobby and Bobby's dad, people. Have I said that? It's not my world. So we're pumped. The day comes. I show up. We get to the plane and you go to this, you know, private little uh, private airport and you get there and immediately, whatever expectations I had in my head, I was confronted with, this is not exactly the plane I was thinking. It was not Air Force One by any stretch of the imagination. It was a tiny, old, rickety plane from the 1980s that had a weird smell to it. Everything was outdated. It just wasn't like, I feel so comfortable and confident this thing can make it all the way there. And to top it off, the weather began to storm. And so it's storms that are taking place, and it was raining all the way that we're there, and we're taking off in the flight. And everywhere you look, there's like dense fog and rain coming down. And you're in this tiny little plane where every little, every bump, you could feel as though like you were riding some sort of sick ride at, you know, at Six Flags. And what made it worse than anything else was one of my friends was the pilot. Now, you've never thought about this before, but there's certain occupations when they interface with your life, you don't want to know anything about them. In other words, when you're putting your life in someone else's hands, you don't want it to be some fraternity from the Kappa Sig that was Frank the Tank in college that now, and everybody thought he wasn't going to graduate, and now he's your brain surgeon, where you're like, oh man, I feel great about this. You just want to assume this probably, this guy was like, you know, magna cum laude, he was Nobel Peace Prize nominated. I don't want to know anything about this person, you know, if they're doing brain surgery. Same is true as it relates to flying a plane. And my friend, his name was Mark. And Mark was the kind of guy that was honestly just a little bit crazy. And he's the guy that would always joke about like not knowing if he knew what he was doing. He's like, yeah, this is my first time flying one of these things. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. And you're like, man, it's not funny, man. It's not funny. (laughs) And to make matters worse, Mark only had nine fingers. Story for another time. But I'm confident there are at least 10 buttons up inside of that cockpit up there. You want your boy to have nine Plus fingers, 10 <laughs> fingers. And I'm literally on this plane and we're hitting all this turbulence and I'm flying down. And what I thought was going to be amazing, I'm just like struck with so much anxiety. And I'm like, man, this is how I go out. I'm beginning to flash through. I'm going to die at the hands of nine finger Mark. My daughter won't have anyone to walk her down the aisle. Who's going to teach my son to throw a football? Who's going to provide for my wife? All of this is beginning because that's what anxiety does. You just flash worst case scenario without even really trying. The irony of ironies is I was flying down to teach at that event on anxiety. And I'm sitting in a plane just overwhelmed with it, panicking and freaking out, thinking, oh my gosh, man, we're, we're about to go. What does that have to do with what I want to talk about tonight? Well, as you probably guessed, I want to talk about anxiety. And what do you do in those moments when you just feel overwhelmed with fear, panic, anxiousness? Where do you turn? I want to walk through what I think will be really helpful. And in a season where people are experiencing crippling anxiety. If you walked into the room and you felt overwhelmed, panicked, had a panic attack, fearful, you're not unusual. That's sadly normal. And yet for Christians, I believe God wants to speak to that so that it doesn't become your just new normal. And that you would be equipped to battle when those moments of anxiety strike. 
And so I want to look at five things really quickly. But before I do, I just want to set up. This really is an epidemic proportion. There's a pandemic going on or has been going on. But there's been an epidemic of mental health problems that have exploded in the last 10 years. What do I mean by that? CDC did a report that released that 63% of young people, ages 18 to 24, 63% are suffering significant symptoms of anxiety or depression. CDC in June 2020 said that one in four adults ages 18 to 24 have committed or considered committing suicide. That it is a time where anxiety in college is one of those breeding grounds for anxiousness just to consume us. Because it, like young adulthood, is when you're beginning to stare uncertainty in the face and come to grips with the fact that what am I going to do with my life? Like in other words, prior to really beginning to enter into adulthood, all of life is pretty well mapped out. It's not that it doesn't have challenges and hardships and things that come along with it, but For the most part, you have this clear track of trains that you're running on. You go to first grade, then you go to second grade. Then after that, you go to third grade. After that, you go to fourth, on and on. You go to middle school. After that, you go to high school. After that, you go into college. After that, you go to freshman year, sophomore year. And it's like at the end of either senior year or senior year part two, the tracks run out and there's just a free fall. And questions like, am I supposed to marry this person? What am I going to do with my career? Did I study the wrong thing in college? How am I going to afford to pay off these student loans? How am I going to afford to pay for health insurance? How am I going to afford for all these different thousand things? And they flood our minds. And so it's a time of naturally there there to be increased anxiety. And I think tragically, Christians have not done well at talking about what God actually says about combating anxiety. In other words, it's often an issue that if you struggle with anxiety or mental health in general, you're quickly pushed to a counselor, to medication, somewhere outside of the church. I am all for, or believe counseling, even medication, can be incredible gifts to Christians. But they are not a replacement for God's word. And God has given those to be sometimes supplements, but not replacements, because God's word is our first line of defense. Now, here's why, for most people who are Christians, it's not. They don't understand what it actually says. In other words, they have been mistaught or they misunderstand what the Bible teaches about anxiety. And they assume that if you asked, in fact, I would guess if I asked the average person here, what does the Bible say? If you were to guess, write it out, what do you think it says? You'd say, stop. Just have more faith. Don't worry, just pray about it. All of which are unhelpful. And candidly, I think unbiblical because they're so oversimplified. What God has to say is far more profound, far more helpful, far more practical. And I think as we walk through this, you're about to be given some practical tools when those feelings of fear and anxiety rise up of how to combat them. So we're going to walk through in Matthew chapter 6, one of Jesus' most famous teachings ever in one of the greatest sermons of all time ever, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, covers a lot of topics. And in chapter 6, he brings up the topic of anxiety. Turns out people have been anxious for thousands of years. This was 2,000 years ago when Jesus wrote. And he teaches what's called the Sermon on the Mount because he's on a mountainside and this crowd of people in front of him. And he launches into a conversation about anxiety. And he's going to give us five things. So if you take notes, I'm going to write out five different things that Jesus explains that I think will lead us on a path of a practical tool 
or tools to help you fight anxiety. Now, before I go into those verses, let me do something that I think may really help you. I want to define what the Bible means by the word anxiety or do not be anxious because this is one of the most misunderstood. When the Bible says in Matthew chapter six, we're about to see, do not be anxious or in Philippians chapter four, do not be anxious or in any of the different places it talks about do not be anxious. It is not saying never have an anxious thought. That's impossible. The Greek word that Paul wrote Originally, the Bible, New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word that when they have do not be anxious is the Greek word merimnau. It's a word that in ancient Greek literature is synonymous with meditation. So when Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind. He's not saying, never have an anxious thought, just pray. That's impossible. He is saying, do not meditate on fearful, anxious thoughts. That is possible. And and honestly, I don't know that any of us would disagree with that. In other words, my guess is you're 18 to 22 in the room. In all of that time of life, you have never heard the following from someone. You know what made my life way better than it used to be? I began to wake up every single morning and start 15 or five or a few minutes a day meditating on everything possible that could go wrong that day. I just went through it all. We could get hit by an asteroid. I could die of COVID. I could lose my hair. It could all fall out. My arm could fall off. All these things could happen. And I began to meditate on those thoughts and my life changed for the better. No, no one would disagree with that. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, he's not saying never have an anxious thought. He's saying, do not meditate or choose to dwell and fix and focus on those anxious thoughts. That is possible. And so when you read the Bible and it says, do not be anxious, that's what he's saying. Do not choose to focus and dwell and meditate on your fearful, anxious thoughts. And Jesus is going to give us some other alternatives, I think, that are helpful as it relates to battling anxiety. So tonight is on battling anxiety or fighting anxiety. And like I said, Matthew chapter 6 I'm going to launch in in verse 25, and we'll go through these five different things. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, Jesus, he brings up the subjects that they would have been anxious about. In this day and age, there wasn't refrigeration. There wasn't a Chick-fil-A. There wasn't a Target to go get clothes at. So worry about food and having enough to eat and worry about clothes and whether or not our clothes are going to run out before we can afford to replace them, that was real. To us, he would bring up whatever you're worried about. He would say, do not worry or be anxious about whether your finals are going to allow you to graduate. Do not be anxious about whether the ring by spring will happen or the relationship will work out. Do not be anxious about whether or not you're going to get into the organization or the position that you want to be a part of, do not be anxious about your summer internship. He's not saying it doesn't matter. He's going to bring up and give them an alternative to their anxiety into dwelling on those anxious thoughts. My point is, whatever you're anxious about, it would still apply. He just brings up what they were anxious about. And then he asks what I think is one of the most profound questions that most people run right by. Isn't life more than food? And the body more than clothes? 
Let me hit pause. Why do you think he asked that question? I mean, think about it. Well, I mean, because Jesus is God, we can assume it's not because he's like, guys, I can't figure this one out. Is life more than food or not? In other words, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's attempting through, to, through that question, give them a bigger perspective or a more clear perspective and ability to see the objects of their anxiety. In other words, his audience would have go, yeah, life is more than food, Jesus. Life is more than clothes. In other words, the epitome of life is not just, do we have enough to eat? His other framing would be saying, hey, is that all life is about, life equal food? His audience would, of course, say, no, it's important. Yeah, but it, is it life? Food equals life? No. What is he doing? He's helping them to more accurately see and put into a bigger context or see with a clear perspective the things that they spend so much of their life dwelling and fixating on. The first thing I want to talk about is track down your anxiety. Jesus is doing a version of what counselors still today will do. If you ever went and saw a counselor and you were trying to get work through maybe some anxiety or something that you were walking through, they will often do what Jesus did where they will ask questions to help you deflate the power of your anxiousness and more clearly see the things over which you are anxious. My wife is a counselor, and I'm about to give you $150 an hour for free right now, people, okay? This is just free. You're going to take it. Where they and she will do what Jesus did. We're asking questions to help them more clearly chase down or track down their anxiousness. Track down their, like, chase it down. What do I mean? Like, if you were to go and see a counselor, and maybe you're really anxious about your final, or maybe you're really anxious about whether or not you're going to find a job when you're going to graduate in the spring or in December. And you sat down with him and you said, man, I'm just freaking out. I can't find a job. I don't know if I'm going to have a place to work after I graduate in December, graduate in May. And they would do what Jesus did, ask questions to help you chase down your anxiety. They may respond with, what happens if you can't find a job in December? Well, if I can't find a job in December, then I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I can't live here anymore because I've graduated. I gotta, I'm going to have to you know, move back home with my parents. What happens if you have to move back home with your parents? Oh, man, that would just be so terrible. I'd feel like I was a failure. Or, you know, I just like, I'd let everybody down and boom. You think you're anxious about a job. You're anxious about what other people think about you. Or you're anxious about letting down your parents. Now, does that make the anxiety go away? No, but you cannot fight what you have not been able to face. And Jesus is saying, man, I want to help track down your anxiety. Maybe one of the biggest, let me tell you something really unconventional you may never hear. And if this is the last time you get to hear it, I hope you do it. Anxiety plagues off of two questions, or two words. It's a single question. What if? What if? What if we break up? What if they start dating someone else? What if I can't afford tuition? What if my parents divorce? And so rarely do we answer the what if. And I'm just getting started, so this is going to sound like, oh, man, I'm getting more anxious. I want you to answer it. What if you break up? 
man, that would be really sad and that would be really hard. Answer it. Anxiety plagues off of those two questions and they never get answered. So there's just this kind of low, under the radar, anxious feeling that I try to pretend is not there, dismiss or deny it being present. It doesn't make it go away. And I'm gonna come back to an additional part of this equation. But for now, I, I wanna encourage you, answer the what if. Does that make it go away? No, but at least now you isolated it and you can look it in the face and do what we're about to go to next, which is begin to bring in what God says. But answer the question, like I'll walk through it with me. What if my wife died? I could sit with that question and plague my mind and pretend it didn't happen. Oh, that was weird. I'm not going to think about that. Or I can answer it. And I could say, that would be the hardest thing I probably will ever face. What if my wife died? I would have to raise my children all alone and be so heartbroken. Now, does that make it go away? No. But it sets me up to do what Jesus tells his audience to do next, which is remember who your God is and what he has promised, which is where he goes next in the text. And we'll continue or finish that equation even in my own life. But for right now, I want you to track down your anxiety. Answer the what if. And then do what we're about to look at. Jesus does next. He says this. Look at the birds of the air. Remember, they're outside, so birds fly over. It's a sermon illustration. They don't sow or reap, as in they don't do anything to plant and get food or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than a bird? Now, I love Jesus because in Luke chapter 10, we're actually told the value of a bird in that day. It was one of the cheapest animals around. And Jesus says, are not two sparrows told for a penny, sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father seeing them happen. Now, I didn't go to Baylor, so I'm not the smartest cat in the book, and I don't do math great, still count on my fingers. But even I know that two sparrows for a penny means a bird in that day and age was worth, follow the one, half a penny. And Jesus says, are you not much more valuable to God than half a penny? And he provides for them and he cares for them. And then he brings another illustration. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the Gentiles, Gentiles are a word for people who don't have a relationship with God, who don't have a heavenly father. They seek after all those things, but your heavenly father knows you need them. Jesus, over and over in this passage, says you have a heavenly father who's promised to provide. Remember the promises of God. The second idea from the text that you and I have been called to remember the promises of God. 
Four times in this passage, he says, do not be anxious. Don't worry about it. Not that it doesn't matter. You don't have to choose to worry about it. Your heavenly father has promised to provide. He brings up the next part of the equation of remember who your father is. But let me ask you something. Could someone say don't worry about it and not mean I will provide for you and be a good father, a good heavenly father? Could they even be a good friend? Like, like let me, let's say after this we go to, what's, what's the best restaurant in Waco? Just say something. Revival? What? Wow, biblical. Uh, what's the best restaurant? Chewy's? Chewy's? Chewy's is fire, man. All right, so after this, what's your name? Jake. Jake and I are going to go to Chewy's. We're walking out to the car. Jake's walking with me, and he goes, oh, man, I forgot my wallet. If I turn to Jake and I say, bro, don't worry about it. And then we go to the restaurant, and we get there, and we sit down, we eat the food. We're eating that jalapeno ranch. It's fire, and we're just loving it. It's great. The waiter, waitress comes up at the end, and she says, one check or two checks? If I look at her and say, two checks, Jake would go, what, what do you mean two? Ch- you said don't worry about it. We were walking out. I said I don't have my wallet. And you took to me and you said don't worry about it. And I said to him, <laughs> you thought I was going to pay for you? No, I just didn't want you to worry, man. Worry's not cool. It's never fun. Just don't want you to be worried. Jake would look at me and go, you're a bad friend and a little crazy. And he would be right. Because implicit in someone saying, do not worry about it is I will provide for you. And you can't be a good friend and say, don't worry about it unless you're promising to provide. And you can't be a good father, a good heavenly father, and say, don't worry about it unless he's promising, I will provide for you. And Jesus brings them through. Remember who your God is. Track down your anxiety and remember who your God is. So let me go back to that thing I mentioned about me. The worst case scenario I could think of. Something horrible happening to my wife or my kids. Stay on the wife. My wife, what if, I answer it, my wife dies of cancer then I would walk through the most painful season I could imagine. But God would meet me there. God would sustain me. In other words, I answer the what if, and then I remember the promises of God. He has promised he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will be my provider. He will protect me. God will get me through it. He has promised this life is a vapor and is painful and terrible and hard as that would be. There will come a day where I see he works everything together for good. I ask what if and I answer it and I remember the promises of God. What if you fail your final and you don't get into the class or into the school or into the program that you wanted to? then that would suck. Answer it. You're going to dwell on it. You're going to be so anxious for so much of your time and so much of your life. You at least owe it to yourself to answer it. And then reinforce and bring in, but God has promised he is in control over everything. And so if he didn't want me in that school, no matter how well or hard I tried, I would not have gotten into that program. 
And he is going to work this together for good, even if I can't see it. I'm going to hold on to trust. What if you break up? That would be really hard. And I would feel like every Taylor Swift song ever was being lived out in my life. And I would be so broken and sad. But God would get me through it. God is near to the brokenhearted. God has promised that life is not found in a spouse or in marriage. It's found in him. God would be with me. That I track down my anxiety and I remember the promises of God. And Jesus brilliantly walks in through, remember who your father is. I think I had some of the promises that I'm running out of time, so we may not have time to put them all up on there, or some of them. And there's so many in the scriptures. I walk through, what if that I would, but God. Over and over, we are told God is a God who provides. John Owen was a famous Puritan who lived hundreds of years ago, and he said something that I think is so profound because it's uh, so brilliantly true and kind of like savage for somebody who lived in the 1700s and, you know, looked like a pilgrim. He said, it is irrational for a Christian to worry because they are saying, God, I trust you as a Christian with all of my eternity, just not with Thursday. I told you, savage. And it's true. And a Christian is somebody who said, God, I trust you with all of my life, with all of my eternity. When you died on the cross, you paid for all of my sin. That's what it means to become a Christian. I accept what you did on my behalf through Jesus, dying in my place, rising again. You paid it all. I trust in you. I trust you with everything. And yet not with whatever is happening tomorrow. Now, it's irrational, and that doesn't make it un, not common or not understandable, but Jesus says, your heavenly father has promised to provide. As it's been well said, we do not know what tomorrow holds. But as a Christian, we're the only ones who know who holds tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But you're the only one who knows who holds tomorrow. And that's your God who's promised to provide. Finally, Jesus asked another question, or thirdly, He says, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? The third idea from the text is understand worry is useless. And Jesus brings up and he says, while we're on the subject, can we all get on the same page? Just getting a consensus with the audience. Can we all agree worrying is never beneficial to your life? In other words, has worrying ever positively or being anxious ever positively contributed to the thing about which you were anxious. If you're anxious about whether or not you're, you're going to remain single, does worrying and panicking about it right now positively benefit whether you're going to still be single? Does worrying about whether your parents are going to get COVID and something's going to happen you know, to their health, does that actually positively contribute or prevent that from happening? No. I mean, it brilliantly just, get, hey, let's all get on the same page. Can we at least agree In theory, worry is useless. It's not positively helping anyone. If anything, it's robbing you of the present. It's not adding to your future. And he brings up that idea of, can you add? In fact, studies have shown Jesus' question of, hey, you can't, by worrying, freaking out, is not going to change the future. It actually can take off of the future. 
Charles Mayo of the Mayo Clinic wrote, and he said this, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. I've never known a man who died of overwork. I have known a whole lot who died of worry. And Jesus asked the question brilliantly, even today, people are still confronted with. It's not helpful. Now, here's why it's hard to even imbibe that idea. And I think one of the things that betrays even our way we think about worry is how we talk about it. As though, yeah, but I can't just let it go and just release all control. Think about that statement. We talk about control in a way that's really funny, I think. A way that we probably shouldn't, honestly, because you've heard it said, and I've heard it said, and I probably have said, and maybe you've said, look, at the end of the day, here's the deal. I just struggle with control. Now, here's why that's a funny thing to say. Because control is something you've never had. In other words, it's like my five-year-old who pushes down his sister and goes, when he's caught, Dad, I just struggle with Hulk strength. It's like, no, no, you don't. And now you're in timeout and getting a spanking. And Hulk strength is not something he struggles with. He's never had it. It's like me saying I struggle with x-ray vision. You'd be like, bro, no, you don't. You've never had x-ray vision. You never will have x-ray vision. That's the same thing as saying I struggle with control. You've never had control. You'll never have control. And yet you can... Trust the one who does. A better sentence would be, I struggle with not having control. It's more accurate. And Jesus says, hey, when you feel those feelings, this panicking and freaking out help. Is it positive? So we just walk into the path. We're not done. But he goes to track down your anxiety. Remember the promises of God. Understand worry or anxiousness. Being anxious is useless. And then he gives what I think is one of the most misunderstood verses on anxiety in verse 33. But seek first. Greek word seek is the word prioritize. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The expression of kingdom inside of the New Testament is Greek word basilia. It's basically a word that reflects the reign of a king, the will, the agenda, the kingdom, which is the word he uses here. Other places translated the reign. Prioritize first the will, the kingdom, the agenda of God. What would that have to do with experiencing peace from anxiety? A third idea I want to look at and discuss that Jesus brilliantly brings out because most people misunderstand or misapply or at least half apply what Jesus is saying is seek God's kingdom and surrender yours. Now, how is that helpful? Seek God's kingdom and surrender yours. He just said, seek, prioritize first. When it comes to whose kingdom, whose agenda, whose will for your life is on the throne, there's no competition. His comes first before my own. How does that help my anxiety? Do you know what all of your anxious feelings and anxious thoughts have in common? At the heart of them, they're related to your kingdom. Now, you've never said it like that or even probably thought about it like that because that would be weird to go, you know, I'm just anxious about my kingdom because we don't live in some castle in 1300s. But by kingdom, I mean your agenda, your desires, what you want. In other words, you worry about what you want not happening. And Jesus says, if you and I can begin to live lives, we've been invited to prioritize God. Your agenda, your kingdom, your will comes before mine. 
I prioritize it above mine, you'll begin to experience peace in the place of panic. The truth is that fear, man, ultimately, I'm I'm just anxious about whether or not I'm going to get everything that I want or the things that I want, which is my kingdom. It's further ironic and kind of funny because, I mean, all of us lived through 2020. We're familiar. You're not going to get everything you want in life, and neither am I. And so getting everything in your kingdom and everything you want is not an option. But peace is. And Jesus says, if you will learn to prioritize God, seek God's kingdom, and surrender yours, is whenever there's a contradiction, God, and things are not going the way I want them, and your will is not the way I would have it, I can either choose to panic or trust you. It's not going to change how things are going, but it will change what's happening in my heart. In other words, I can either choose, God, when your will and your sovereign plans unfold and they're not how I want, I can either trust you and have peace or be anxious and have panic. But your will is still going to happen. And if I can seek and learn to seek and prioritize, your kingdom comes before my own. Because most people read this verse and they go, oh, Jesus is saying, don't worry, just go on a mission trip. That's not what Jesus is saying, although that's a great idea if you want to go on a mission trip. He's saying prioritize God's kingdom, God's agenda for your life. He brings us back to something in two words he used 20 verses earlier in the same chapter. You you remember it if you grew up in church. He says this, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth that's in my life in the places and spaces where I live and I walk. God, I'm inviting your kingdom. That's how he says you should pray. Your kingdom comes before my kingdom. Your will comes before my will. And so when I find myself going along, God, man, this is not how I would have had it. I can either choose to surrender my kingdom and embrace his and get an alert from someone or... And embracing his have peace, or I can choose to freak out and have panic. It's not going to change the will of God. This all became really real in my life a few years ago. My daughter was about to be born. We found out we were pregnant, and we were 12 weeks pregnant. And I got a phone call on a Wednesday night, 9.30 at night in December. And we had just found out we were pregnant, and we'd gone to the doctor. They'd do all the tests, and someday... Um, You'll know more specifically probably what I mean, but got all the tests, and the doctor calls 9.30 on a Wednesday night. Immediately, I knew something was off, because doctors don't call typically on 9.30 at Wednesday nights just to be like, so, holiday plans? What are we thinking? <laughs> and my wife said, she gestured over to me, because she called my wife, you got to come sit down. The doctor began to explain, we found out you're having a girl, and we know that because she's been flagged for a chromosomal disorder, that if she has there's a 99% chance she will die before she ever leaves the womb. And if she's in the 1% that makes it out of the womb, she'll have 
immediate heart surgery. She'll have complications for the rest of her life. And it was like a bomb went off. And it's seen in movies where a bomb goes off and all you hear is the ringing and everything slows down and speeds up at the same time. And it's like, And all the stuff that I taught on anxiety all became more real. Where we were forced to do and live out this idea of saying, God, we don't want our daughter to die. God, will you please let our daughter live? But your kingdom, your will comes before our will. And I don't understand how that could be a part of your will. But I trust you. And I'm trying to trust you. And for the next six months, every day, we prayed some version of prayer asking God to let her live. And I wish I could say every moment in that season, I had so much peace because all I did was I would say, God, if that's your will, we trust you. But I can't say that I was always in that posture of, that's what you meant, we trust you. I can say every moment we had peace was, we said, God, we want our daughter to live. But if that's not your will, we trust you. I'm trying to trust you. Help me trust you. And when those happened, it's like peace came rushing in. Jesus modeled this perfectly in Matthew, Mark 14, hours before going to the cross. I'm about to be done. We said, my soul is overwhelmed at the point of death. Jesus is praying and he says, Abba, Father, Mark chapter 15, 14, verse 36. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. If you will learn to track down your anxiety, remember the promises of God. Understand worries is useless. Seek God's kingdom and surrender yours. Your will comes before mine. Yet not what I will, your will. You'll begin to experience peace. Finally, Jesus brings up what I think is such an appropriate way to end where he says this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The final idea is take it one day at a time. Jesus says what some of you may be thinking, well, man, that's, that's how you battle anxiety. I'm going to have to do this every day. I'm going to have to do it tomorrow. I'm going to have to do it tomorrow. Jesus would say, bingo. Anxiety is not something finally and fully and once and for all it goes away. It's something that will be a part of life. But it is something that you can face and battle on a day-by-day basis. And he says, take it one day at a time. Focus on today. Let tomorrow worry about itself. You'll face that when you get there. You focus on today. Do everything responsible today. You sleep well and let tomorrow worry about itself. You focus on one day at a time. It's like this. My uh, wife and I, we love the beach and we love going out to the ocean. And so every once in a while we'll go on vacation and we'll go to the ocean. And a couple years ago I was out when we went with some family and we were there and I was out with a sibling of mine. We were in the ocean just kind of throwing frisbee or football. And soon we look up and realize that the resort that we were in front of was not the resort we were staying at. And it's one of those moments where you're like, what just happened? Have I been teleported somewhere? 
And I look down the ocean line, and I see several resorts down was the one that we were staying at. We had not intended to drift all the way down there. The current, by not intending to not drift down there, naturally just takes you down. You probably have had the experience. And so what do you do? When you're in that, you get up, you start walking against the current, you walk back to the place where you want to be. In the battle of anxiety, this is exactly what we do as Christians every single day. That The current of the world and life around you and uncertainty is going to attempt to push you in the direction away from peace, away from God, and towards anxiety. And you and I, on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, decide, I'm going to intentionally walk against the flow and the current of the world around me. And I'm going to choose, because if I don't, you're just going to get pushed in the direction of anxiety. But you can decide. I know the current is coming for me. And so I'm going to do things, and I'm going to seek to trust God. I'm going to track down my anxiety. I'm going to see what's behind the what if. I'm going to remember the promises of God. I know worry does never help me. It's useless. And so when those feelings hit me, and I'm confronted with things may not go how I want them, I'm going to look at you, God, and say, God, I trust you. Your kingdom comes before mine. Your will comes before mine. And I trust you. And I'm going to take it one day at a time. Jesus promised in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. But I tell you this so that in me you will have peace. Six months later, a healthy baby girl was born. And I don't know what God was doing. I don't know if it was a miracle. I don't know if it was a false flag. And I hesitate to share that part of the story because it makes it sound like that happens every time. And the truth is it doesn't. And you're going to face things, and I'm going to face things for the rest of my life that I wouldn't plan, I wouldn't want, and I didn't ask for. But God has promised, though in this world you will have trouble, you and me can have peace knowing I am at work. You are never alone. I am near to you. You can trust me. I am with you. I love you so much, I gave my life for you. And you can either embrace that, hold on to that, and have peace, or you can hold on to fear and have anxiety. But God's will is going to happen. If you're in the room and you're walking through some anxious times, I'd love to close by just praying for you. And so if you will bow heads, everybody can bow right now and wherever you're at, maybe it's something with family or school or honestly, all the stuff that I even described, they pale in comparison to what you're facing. And I'd love to pray over you. And if you right now, where you are, would just raise a hand so that I can pray over whatever you're walking through, that although I don't know it, God does. And I'd love to pray for you. Hands all over the room. You're not alone. You're not alone in this room. You've never been alone in life. Father, I pray for every hand right now that's raised, that is walking through a valley of anxiety, depression, pain, fear, that you would be 
bigger in their heart, in their mind, in their life, and more real than all of those things. Their awareness of you and your presence and your nearness would be heightened. And that your peace would flood as they release to you their life, as they release to you the future. We know that fear and faith require the same thing in order to exist, uncertainty. And so now, would you allow in the face of that uncertainty, fear to cease, to diminish, and faith to flourish? Thank you that you have defeated ultimately all anxious thoughts, all fear, all uncertainty, and conquered death through Christ. We worship him now in song and with our lives.